Hey, I'm Dr. Laura Berman, a sex and relationship therapist. And for the past three decades, I've been helping people learn how to love and be loved better. That's what we're doing here on The Language of Love, where I get to answer calls and emails from people just like you. My goal with The Language of Love is to help you discover more meaningful emotional and physical intimacy and to help you build more awareness of how precious and sacred your sexuality really is. Be sure to email me or reach out with your very own love, sex, relationship questions, and I might just answer them live on the air. It's time we all become fluent in the language of love. Welcome to the show. So I'm super excited um, to introduce you to really, full disclosure, what I consider to be one of my dearest soul friend teachers, Anita Morjani. We're so lucky to have her. She's one of my heroes and one of my heart friends. Say hi, Anita. Hi, audience. And hi, Laura. Oh, my God. You are one of my most beautiful, sweetest friends, too. And so happy that we both live here in L.A. and Southern California. So I get to see you in person when when the whole COVID thing lifts. <laughs> thing I lifts. know. We've even snuck a few times and done a beach walk or two. And in case you don't know her, you must learn more about Anita Morjani. She's an international speaker, a New York Times bestselling author of Dying to Be Me and What If This Is Heaven. And just a little background, Anita was born in Singapore to Indian parents, lived in Hong Kong most of her life. And from the age of two, I always thought this was so fascinating and such a testament to your just how smart you are. But Basically, from the age of two, she grew up speaking English, Cantonese, and Indian dialect simultaneously. Currently lives in Southern California, not too far from me, with her husband of 26 years, Danny, who you call Boo, right? Is that his nickname? Yes, that's his name, Boo. And actually, Anita, we're going to get into this a little bit later, but Anita actually ran, was a runaway bride from an arranged marriage <laughs> before she met Danny. We'll get into that. And uh, Anita used to work in the corporate world, I guess, until you were about your early 40s when you had a cancer diagnosis, a horrible battle with cancer for four years, and a famous near-death experience that was on uh, the 2nd of February in 2006, and a miraculous full recovery, and that really was the birth of the book Dying to Be Me, which is one of my all-time favorite books, and I've actually been revisiting it a lot in recent months since losing my son, but it really is about what happened on the other side. Really a powerful, a powerful book. And her most recent book, which is what I really want to focus on in our conversation, is uh, just came out, Sensitive is the New Strong, The Power of Empaths in an Increasingly Harsh World. It just was published about a month ago, and I'm so excited to talk to you about this whole, because we hear this term empath, right? And you hear it a lot now. I'm an empath, you're an empath. I think it's more important than ever before with all the craziness in the world. I consider myself an empath, you know, Um, but I think we need to explain it. I want you to explain in a minute, I think it's really powerful, your description of, of what an empath is, but also the difference between an empath and a highly sensitive person, because that's an important distinction. But before we do that, just tell me a little bit about what led you to write this book now. So what's behind it is, so there's a few things. Um, The first thing was that it's only in the last few years that I realized that I'm an empath. I had, at the time when I had my near-death experience and I came out of it from the other side, 
I knew I had always been sensitive. You know, that's just a term that's always used. And it's always used in a way sort of derogatory. It's like, don't be so sensitive. And even, you know, you brought up the runaway bride thing. I was made to feel that the reason that I ran away from that arranged marriage was because I was too sensitive to handle the challenges. And I was told these are normal things that happen in a marriage and you're just too sensitive. You're just too fragile. You're just, and it was always a negative thing being sensitive. So my whole life I was brought up believing that it was negative and this was this thing that I had to overcome and suppress. And it was only in my near-death experience did I realize that I had to embrace all of who I am, everything. And then the book Dying to Be Me came out and What If This Is Heaven came out. And it was really only maybe around 2016 or 17 that I started to come across this term empath. And I started to look into it. And I was like, oh, wow, there's a term for this. There's a description. And I related to it. It was like, oh, that's me. I'm an empath. And it gave me a deeper understanding. What happened is that so then I started to realize that there are other people in the world that are like that. But I also started to realize that not everybody is like that because it clarified for me the parts of me that are different from the, the parts of me that are different from other people. And, uh, and it kind of just gave me a definition and it was very liberating. And often people say nowadays, they say, oh, you say you're an empath and you've written a book for empaths, but I thought you don't like labeling people. I don't consider empath as labeling. A label is something that restricts you and confines you. Whereas discovering I was an empath set me free. It liberated me. So that's the difference between a label and a description that sets you free. I love that. That's a really good definition. And I would agree with you. I mean, I think my first, and I will get into the definition, so to speak, but my first introduction to the quote unquote empath was with my oldest son, my now 23-year-old, when he was a freshman in high school and was just going through such a hard time and was suicidal. And I had tried medication and therapists and doctors and treatment and nothing was working. And I finally actually went to a, a medium psychic just out of desperation. And she said to me, well, she didn't use the word empath, but she said, oh, he's clairsentient. You know, you hear about clairvoyant or clairaudient or whatever. Clairsentient is, when, is basically a version of an empath when you feel what other people are feeling. And in his case, which is one of the reasons that I think this book and these definitions and understanding ourselves this way is so important because for him, and I think for many of us, he didn't know that was happening. So he would feel what other people were feeling. They even misdiagnosed him with Asperger's because the therapist would say, smile at him and say, what am I feeling right now? And he would say, sad, because he was feeling sadness. And she was like, oh, he can't read social cues, you know? But what he was happening is he was feeling what other people were feeling. And at first, he didn't realize those feelings weren't his. So he was like an ungrounded electrical cord whipping all over the place. And I think it's so valuable for us to understand because it's really, like you say in the title, sensitive is the new strong. It's really actually an extremely powerful gift. Yes. So the distinction is that an empath actually absorbs the emotions of other people into their own field, into their own energy field. And then they feel it as if it's their own. And then they can't distinguish between other people's emotions 
and their own emotions. That is the distinction. A highly sensitive person just knows what other people are feeling. They feel what other people are feeling, but they don't absorb it into their own field. There's still a distinction. So, for example, a highly sensitive person would make a really good um, frontline medical worker or a nurse or somebody like that because they know what everybody needs right away. It's like the person doesn't even have to say it. It's like, oh, I know this is what they need. This is, this is what they're feeling. And they're able to give them exactly what they need to alleviate that discomfort. But an empath will actually take that on in their own field and their own energetic field in their own body. And at the end of the day, will wonder, oh my God, why am I feeling all this? Why am I feeling so sick? And they think it's their own. And then they go and try and heal it as if it's their own, not realizing that actually the healing work they're doing is um, not going to work because they're not healing trauma of their own. It's someone else's trauma. They've just taken that energy. Yeah, there's nothing to heal. What they have to do is learn how to stop being a sponge and taking that energy on. They have to learn to distinguish this is not mine, so I have to let it go. I have to not take it on. That's what they have to learn, not how to heal this trauma. How would you say, because I think there's lots of ways to do this, and this is one of the things, because to me, this is your first book where you have ventured into the quote-unquote prescriptive. You know, you, you give really concrete tools and, and, and techniques in ways, you know, your other book was more of a journey and an illumination and this is what I've learned and this is what I want to share with you. And it was really powerful, but, but this book does that and you're giving really specific tools and techniques, which I think is so powerful. So just from that standpoint, you know, if, if, and that you, and I know you have an empath quiz, right, on your website. So if, if you want to check it out, go to anitamorjani.com and you can even take the quiz, I'm assuming, and find out if you're yes. an empath. But if you are and you're taking in these energies and emotions and feelings of other people, what would you say, you know, some simple, I know there's a lot, there's a whole book you've written on it, but what are a few simple techniques just as an example, to give people a taste of what you can do to kind of separate out other people's stuff you're sponging up from your own. So first of all, um, I, I tell people that if you are an empath, you definitely need to spend some time alone and you do need alone time. This is a must and it can be like 30 minutes a day or it can be an hour every couple of days or, or more if you can, if you can spare the time. And one of the things that I suggest you do with your alone time um, is that you can, you can listen to music, you can meditate. But what I love doing is I love going out in nature. Nature is a great cleanser. So one of the things that I did, like I have a little small yard, which you can see behind me. For a few years, it was overgrown with weeds. But when, while I was at home with COVID, it became my project to really clean it up and grow stuff and fix it up. And what nature does is it earths you. It earths you with the rhythm of the earth. And the earth, the energy of the earth and the energy of nature is very, very pure and clean. And so you start to get entrained with that pure energy. And you just, without having to do anything, without having to learn a process or study anything, it literally just cleanses your energy and aligns it with the earth. 
it is just the easiest way to cleanse your energy is, you know, just go stand on the beach, get your feet into the sand, stand on grass, play in the garden, plant, plant something, get your hands in the dirt, anything like that, go in the ocean, anything like that will actually cleanse your energy of everything else. Because what it does is it aligns you with the earth energy. It entrains you. I talk about this in my book, in Quantum Love, you know, we're all vibr everything, everything, including nature is pure vibration. You know, other people, we're matching each other's vibration. We're finding the happy medium. Some of us are more likely to match other people's, their, you know, versus hold our own frequency. But the thing I love about being out in nature is that it is unchanging. It is not gonna match your frequency. It is just at a high, beautiful, cleansing frequency, and you don't even have to do anything. Your system just automatically, like you said, entrains or matches it. Beautiful advice. I love that. And nature will never compromise its frequency for you. It'll stay at that high vibration. Empaths have a tendency, even unconsciously, even if you're with people you love who might be going through issues and all, we have this tendency to unconsciously match our frequency with the people around us. And we do it without thinking. Nature won't do that. It's going to stay there. And when we're with nature, we'll slowly find ourselves matching to it. And I think that's, you know, as someone, I think it's also interesting, and I know you write about this and talk about this, that those of us who were born into families where there's been a lot of trauma or a lot, you know, or abuse or addiction or very difficult, you know, uh, times in that from that very early age, we naturally honed our empathy, you know, our intuitive and empathy yes. skills because it was key to our survival. We needed to know when we walked into the house, you know, should I turn around and, you know, walk back out to the playground or is it safe to go in? How do I keep myself safe here? And so those of us who had the hardest childhoods often are the most empathic. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And, what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So it's a gift in many ways. And I want to I wanna talk about that because it can be a burden. You know, it can make you sick. It can, it can make you depressed if you're taking on everybody else's energy and you aren't doing things and, and practicing separating your energy from other people, recognizing what's yours and what's theirs, and releasing that so you're not carrying that, almost like a sponge squeezing out. What would you suggest when it comes, you know, when it comes to being an empath that the first step you should be, if you think that, or the first step you should take, if you think that you might be someone like this? So the first step is to recognize and acknowledge that you are one. So it's to recognize that, oh, wow, all these energies I've taken on and maybe even the times I got sick, it was not my own stuff. It was because I was taking on other people's stuff. So it's to recognize that you have a tendency. When you recognize it, it's already a huge step. The second thing is to, to realize that not only, you know, are you absorbing other people's stuff, but you are, because of that tendency, you tend to attract 
more of it. So here's what happens with empaths. You don't even realize that you do this because you feel everybody's energies and emotions unconsciously. You need them to feel good so that you can feel good. So you have to start being aware that are my relationships codependent? Have I attracted people into my life because they have become dependent on me trying to make them feel good all the time? Are my relationships also based on the fact that I am trying to make everybody feel good? So these are things where we really have to be very honest with ourselves. We really have to be very honest with ourselves and, and ask ourselves, are we doing this? Am I doing this with everybody around me? Am I? And so the more that you need people around you to feel good, the more you're going to just keep attracting people who only want to be around you because, because you, you make them feel good. Yeah, I call that the broken little bird syndrome. I was one of those two where I looked around on every one of my friends, you know, people that were in my life. I was really attracted to and they were attracted to me, the fixer-uppers or the people struggling. And I know that part of that was because I was, am an empath, but part of it was also from the codependent perspective that I, I was used to that. You know, I had to bolster my mom and my dad. I had to emotionally take care of my parents so that they could take care of me. That was the only way I could get my needs met. But it also made me feel safe because if my story was, which is totally a ridiculous story, if you need me, you won't leave me. And so it gives this false sense of safety. It was totally unconscious. It wasn't like I set out to do this. But when I finally realized that, I changed and I made a conscious decision. I was like, I want to attract in people who are wiser than me, who are more together than I am, who I can learn from, who I don't have to bolster and support. Like, I can't be putting my energy out this much. I need some for myself. And it really changed everything in my life when I made that decision. But I want to ask you, you know, in, in Dying to Be Me, you, you talk about your near-death experience. But, one, you know, one of the key messages is about how those negative thoughts that we have about ourselves, our feelings about ourselves, and our fears, and actually contribute to the creation of illness. And that's what you learned about your cancer, right? Talk a little bit about how being an empath plays a role in that equation. Yes. So, um, so I'm going to share a story about myself, which I didn't go into this depth in the book and dying to be me, but I'll share it now. So I was an empath and didn't realize it, didn't realize it until a few, a few years ago. So at the time, I was an empath and needed people around me to feel good. So my best friend was diagnosed with cancer before I, before I was. So we were both healthy, vibrant, young people, uh, and she was the mother of young children. I was married but had no children, and we were best friends. We were like sisters. And then all of a sudden, it literally felt like it was out of the blue, She was having trouble, difficulty breathing. She goes to see a doctor. They find a tumor in her chest. And she was diagnosed with a very, very aggressive form of cancer where her chance of survival was only 5%. It was like a 95% chance of, of her dying. And the doctors actually told her that and her family. They told her family she knew she was going to die. And so what happened then was that was that when she told me, for me, I just took it on as if it, 
was the news was mine, as if I had been told that this was my diagnosis. It just hit me in the gut and I was like, I could not believe it. And I said to her that we're going to see you through this. You're going to make it. Don't worry. You're going to be that 5%. And I literally stopped my own life to be there for her. That was the kind of person I was. I would take on everybody's stuff. And so as I was going to treatments with her and I was watching her deteriorate and I was feeling the fear she was feeling. I literally, I, I was feeling everything she was feeling with her. I wasn't able to go out with my friends because I would feel guilty that she's dying. How dare I go and have fun? And I couldn't, like, I would try and go shopping to, to clear my head and maybe, you know, buy some new clothes or something. And even trying on clothes wasn't any fun for me. It was like, like, who do I think I am buying clothes while she's there in hospital? I just couldn't. It was like it was happening. I took it all on. My own life started falling apart. But every problem that I was facing in my own life, you know, I was feeling my health was deteriorating. I was getting tired, sleepless nights. I wasn't there for my husband, my extended family. Um, my mom lived there as well in, in Hong Kong, my brother. I wasn't there for anyone else. My life was falling apart, but I wasn't paying attention to it because to me, even when other people wanted me and I would turn them down, it was like, oh, that's not important compared to what she's going through. And I was getting, you know, my immune system was breaking down. Oh, this is nothing compared to what she's going through. So I undermined everything that I was going through because what she was going through was more important because I needed her to feel good until I got this lump on my neck. And so this was going on. She was deteriorating for, it was going on for over a year. So my life is like crumbling. I got this lump on my neck and I went and had it. Um, I went to the doctor. He did a biopsy and he said it was lymphoma. They did scans and they said it was stage two. Um, so the interesting thing is I was, of course, very fearful. I was scared of cancer because I was watching what, was, what she was going through. But there was a small part of me that said, ah, now I get to take care of myself. So it was like now I had a reason. Yeah, I was able to say, I have cancer too, so now I can take care of myself. But the interesting thing is even during the process, so, so she died, which of course completely shook me. But even during the process of me dealing with my illness, um, I was still always concerned for other people. Like if other people put their lives on hold for me, um, I would feel uncomfortable. I wanted to take care of people who were trying to take care of me. I always worried that, oh, don't go out of your way. Don't go out of your way to do that. And it was literally only when I died did I realize that you don't need an excuse or a reason to take care of yourself. And empaths have a tendency to have that pattern that I just spoke about. Even when I was on the other side, um, you know, I didn't know anything about being an empath, but the thing is that I questioned when I was on the other side, I was in the state of clarity and I wanted to know why was it that, you know, because I realized that I had not loved myself enough 
that I didn't need a reason to take care of myself. But I wanted to know why did I get such a drastic wake up call as end stage cancer and dying from cancer? Why did I need such a drastic wake up call? And the answer that came to me was that all the other wake up calls were not good enough. And you needed a wake up call that, so in other words, your friend's terminal cancer was more important to you than anything. So you needed an equal diagnosis, an equal thing happened to you to make you realize that, no, you got to take care of you first if you want to be there for everyone else. And that really changed everything for you, obviously. You came back, you had a complete miraculous recovery, and um, it's been one of the lessons, obviously, you've carried forward and now taken to this new level. And one of the things, um, you know, and by the way, I talk about this too, when my mother was dying of, of what was ultimately breast cancer. I was basically doing what you did with your friend, and within a year of her dying, I had breast cancer in the same breast she had it. But, you know, one of the things that you talk about and you write about, I mean, I know your story because you've told it to me personally, you know, as my friend, but you talk about it in this book as well. Um, I, I think in, in the chapter where you talk about breaking through gender norms and the runaway bride, you left this arranged marriage, or before you got married, you stopped the arranged marriage. And, and this was before you met and married your husband of, what, 26 years, I think? But this whole idea of just being unapologetically authentic, and that was a great example of your willingness to buck the system and and not be the good girl and not toe the line. What advice would you give to all of us, but especially the empaths out there for whom other people being okay is so important. What do we do when you're, when, when you're scared to really step into your authenticity? So I would say that you need to check in with yourself and remember that basically one of the things I speak about in the book is that um, we are actually energy beings, much more. We are six sensory beings. We're not five sensory beings. We are six sensory beings. There is an unseen sense. There is an energy about you that other people are picking up on. And this is why for empaths, it's super important. You are actually more connected than people who are not empaths. If, if you are a psychic, a clairvoyant, and so on, chances are you are an empath. Empaths are super connected. And so what I would say is that remember that, remember that you have this sixth sense and you have to tune in and say, okay, am I honoring myself? Am I loving myself? Am I doing something that feels good for myself? And if it's a no, then that means you are not embracing yourself unapologetically. You need to get to a place where you do feel that you are honoring yourself because what happens is when you are authentic, as an empath, when you are authentic and when you can embrace all of who you are, then what happens is that you actually, um, your, your energy expands and you impact people around you. You make other people feel good just by your presence. An empath's desire is to make other people feel good. But the mistake we make is that we do it by wearing ourselves down. The key that I'm trying to show people in this book is that there is a way to make other people feel good 
by making yourself feel good. And yes, and that's what I teach is that you make yourself feel good. You emanate this energy where other people become entrained by your energy field the same way you become entrained by nature. This is the way to uplift other people. I, I think that's beautifully said and so true. And, um, and, you know, we tell ourselves we're being selfish or we don't want to hurt other people with our authenticity or we'll be rejected if we're our most authentic selves. And I think it's such an important message and such an important lesson that actually, yeah, you might, you know, some people who just are at a much lower frequency than you or who, you know, have their own issues. It's not to say that you won't impact people or they may take issue with you, but those aren't your problem. What you'll find when you really step into your truest self is that you're like a magnet for other beautiful people. Yes. And I, and I want to add one more thing is that empaths very often can't distinguish the difference between being assertive and being aggressive. And so I want to actually um, differentiate that for empaths. When empaths are being assertive in their heads, they think they're being aggressive. So here's the difference. Aggressive people want to control you and they, they want you to, um, they want to control you because it serves their life. Assertive people want to take their own power back and control their own life. They have no interest in controlling other people but they just want control over their own life. Passive people allow other people to control their lives. So basically, so if it's a scale and you've got passive at one end, aggressive at the other end, healthy is in the middle and that's being assertive. It's about just taking control of your own life and allowing other people their own authenticity and their own autonomy over their lives. You have no interest in controlling their life. But, many, but very often, empaths actually believe that even taking their own control back from other people is being aggressive. Remember, ask yourself this, are you trying to control their life or just your own? If it's just your own, then you have the right over your life. If they are trying to take control of your life and that's why you're feeling uncomfortable remember it's them that's being aggressive not you by being assertive i love that distinction thank you so much thank you for writing this book thank you for all of your teaching uh definitely check out the book sensitive is the news strong um and you can learn more also uh you can follow anita right at anita morjani and morjani is spelled m-o-o-r-j-a-n-i so at anita morjani if you go to anitamorjani.com you can find the empath quiz, see if you're an empath, definitely read the book. And I always recommend to people, Anita, that they listen, if you can, like on Audible, listen to your books. Did you read this book too? As you can tell, she has the most beautiful voice and accent. And I've both read and listened to Dying to Be Me, and I highly recommend listening to, to your books as well, because you have a really beautiful voice. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> I love you to pieces. And um, anything you want to say as we end? I've said, I've said what I, I think what I need to say, except that I want to say that I love you as well. And I miss you. And uh, yeah. And, uh, and I want to thank the audience for listening in. Um, and remember, being an empath is a gift. It is a gift, truly. Not a, not a burden or a curse when you know how to use it. Amen.
for that. Thank you. And uh, make sure that you subscribe to the podcast if you like it, The Language of Love. You can always reach out to me on drlaraberman.com. You can find the links right there to ask email questions or voicemail questions. And I will see you next time on The Language of Love. <music>